Our reading from God's Word comes from Psalm 19 as we continue through Psalm 119, picking up in verse 73. We'll read Psalm 119, verses 73 through verse 80. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. I ask you to join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing upon our scripture sermon for this evening. Thank you, our God, and I acknowledge our need, uh, even now, our our great need to uh, be given uh, that measure of faith necessary to hear your word and to receive it rightly. We ask that you would attend the reading and the preaching of your word with the gracious influence and effective ministry of the Holy Spirit. You alone can give life, and we rejoice that you delight to give it. You alone can rule over hearts, and we rejoice that you delight to rule over us in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. And so we would have Christ exalted as the one who was willing to be abased, brought low, put to open shame, to make known the riches of your love for us, to retrieve us from our lost and helpless estate, help us to see what is the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of your love poured out upon us. In Jesus Christ. Satisfy us on nothing else. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can turn in the New Testament to the book of Philippians. Which provides... very similar blueprint 
that we will consider in question 27 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'll read the scripture passage and then to the catechism. First, this is God's word. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And Westminster Shorter Catechism 27 asks, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Uh, We know the saying that um, such a task um, is beneath him. If you don't know that saying exactly, perhaps you've never said it, such a thing is beneath me, it's beneath him, it's beneath her. Even if you've not spoken this way, I guarantee you've looked at things in this way. And likely you are the him or the her. (laughs) There's some remarkably humbling iterations of this theme that I can consider from my own life. I remember volunteering once at a summer youth camp and having to take out the garbage. And this wasn't like household garbage. This was summer camp garbage. And there was a summer camp garbage dump. And like I had to go on it. And I don't think my description of the situation was as polite as this was beneath me. <laughs> I think it was something along the lines of recalcitrance and a horrid temper tantrum. <laughs> Reflecting that I believed that that was beneath me. There's a whole host of things that we think are beneath us. Not many of them are. It frames for us the high opinion that we have of ourselves. We think of ourselves quite highly, and we think of a number of things that are far too low for our noble persons. The perspective that question 27 opens up is humbling. Paul intends it to be humbling. That's the main takeaway of Philippians 2. He highlights that human tendency to think too highly of ourselves, to think too frequently of ourselves, to boast in ourselves. He acknowledges that reality just obliquely. He doesn't even directly look at it. But he acknowledges that reality as he commends the one 
whose entire earthly life was beneath him. Whose entire earthly existence was inconceivably beneath him. We've considered all of these parts variously, haven't we? I mean, a number of these concerns have already come up. The incarnation, Christ's suffering, Christ's death. We talked about the God-man. We talked about Christ as a priest. But there's something remarkable about seeing them as a sequence. Seeing them as a narrative. Seeing them as a descent. Seeing them as a plunge into darkness. And I think that's the takeaway. To see it all set before us. To see the depth to which the eternal Son of God voluntarily plunged Himself. And then ask, why? That's what question 27 postures us to see, to ask, and then to marvel at when we consider the answer to the question, why? In the humiliation of Jesus Christ, we see the length to which the Son voluntarily went to secure His Father's glory and our salvation. And those two things are two sides of the same coin. For the Father's glory is uniquely on display in the salvation of sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's consider the descent. You can look at it under three stages. Birth, death, and burial. His humiliation is made plain first and foremost in the incarnation. That's what you see right on display here, first and foremost. It consisted in his being born and that in a low condition. None of us, as we've pointed out, were abased by being born. (laughs) Birth is a remarkably humbling experience, it's messy. It's ugly. Once upon a time, doctors had the decency to let husbands wait in the waiting room. (laughs) Just bring the child out. (laughs) Remarkably messy affair. But it was suitable, fitting for us. We're creatures. (laughs) But for the Son of God to be born is a condescension. For he is the creator. He is true God. The maker of heaven and earth. The one in whom all things hold together. The eternal word there in the bosom of the Father. As let there be light went forth and there was light. And then all of a sudden... Mary gave birth to her firstborn and wrapped him in swaddling clothing and laid him in a manger. The astonishing fact that the eternal word became man, which is to say that God took unto himself a true human 
nature is an act of condescension. The descent begins at his birth. The descent begins in a manger. But it doesn't just remark on the fact that he was born. It says he was born in a low condition. Even my wife was attended by the finest offerings that modern medicine can afford. And we are not very high persons. The Bible is at pains to juxtapose the wealth of Herod, his palace, his attendants, the regalia of an earthly king with the lowliness of God's king, the low condition in which the Christ was born. With the creator taking unto himself human nature, becoming a creature is not astonishingly profound enough Consider that his companions were sheep and cows. Consider that he exchanged the angelic refrain of worthy, holy, worthy, holy, for bleat and low of cow and sheep. Think about our own obsession with ensuring that circumstance reflect the dignity of our persons. We won't even have people over if our house is messy. Lest some clutter reflect poorly upon my high and noble status. The Lord Jesus Christ was born in an animal stall. It would not have been pleasant. It would have been marked with signs of lowliness, signs of filth. It would have been marked with the reality of this earth. This king exchanged the glory of heaven for the humility and lowliness of a stall born unto peasants for all intents and purposes. Poverty, certainly. And not just that, but a life of poverty attended him his whole life. Foxes have holes. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The Gospels make a point to highlight that Jesus and his apostles lived on the alms given to them by women. That's not very glorious. (laughs) There was a certain lowliness that attended his whole life, a certain poverty that attended his whole life, the one who was rich beyond all splendor. The one who was glorious beyond all telling lived a life of poverty. Consider the luxuries we enjoy moment by moment. We're about to have a feast, the likes of which 99% of the people who have ever walked this earth would have marveled at. The Lord Jesus Christ, for most of his life, was without earthly comforts. The eternal Son yielded voluntarily all of those gifts, adorning our lives moment by moment, day by day. And perhaps there's room here to pause in awe and thankfulness for what we've been given. What we've been given as sinners, the comforts we enjoy as sinners. 
the comforts we enjoy as creatures, the comforts we enjoy as those above whom the sun towers in terms of his excellence and worth. And yet God gives so graciously. And we're so quick to profile that which is difficult. (laughs) So quick to profile that which we don't have. And yet our lives are adorned with so many testimonies of his kindness and his goodness. Many of which the Lord Jesus Christ himself did not have during his earthly existence. The Lord Jesus Christ was humbled in that he was born and that in a low condition. But not only that, the lawmaker was made under the law. This is what Paul marvels at in Galatians 4.4. In the fullness of time, Jesus Christ was born of a woman made under the law. That's what the confession highlights. He was made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of a cross. That's where the trajectory of humility continues and intensifies. He met with the miseries of this life and the first tastes of the wrath of God. There's an infinite distance between God as Creator and us as creatures. But the fact is that Christ came not just to be a creature, but to be considered a curse. To become a servant under the law, obedient unto the point of death. And to share in all of our sinless infirmities. That's a helpful distinction. Christ was without sin, but He knew our sinless infirmities. He experienced the same infirmities and limitations and weaknesses that we experience day by day. John 4, being tired from His journey, He sat down. He hungered. He thirsted. He knew all of these things that we know day in and day out. We've noted on occasion how easily it is for physical infirmities to slip into moral rebellion, into sin. It's when you're hungry or tired that you get short with one another, that you get short with those nearest to you. It's when you're thirsty or feeling your own limitations that you're quickest to lash out. We're eager to sin as we feel these limitations, but the Lord Jesus Christ knew these limitations. He knew these sinless infirmities, and yet He was without sin. And not only that, but as the pure and spotless Lamb of God, He saw on display everywhere around Him the the reality of sin, the reality of rebellion against His Father, the, the miseries that attended, and yet He was without sin. You can consider Christ witnessing the chaos wrought by death at the mouth of Lazarus' tomb. Where the plain realities of misery were set on display. His closest friends, His closest companions. Mourning, grieving, filled with tears, feeling the ache of loss. And Christ Himself felt this ache in His soul. It's one of the reasons that we confess that He didn't just have a true body, but he had a reasonable soul. He felt these things in his soul. He ached in his soul. He was like us in every way except without sin. The ache of soul is not sinful, and he knew it. He tasted it. He felt it. He saw it 
on display in those whom he loved. He wept even though he knew he would conquer death, even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He saw the woe into which the world had been thrust and he felt it in his soul. How unfitting it is. God doesn't weep. (laughs) The Son of God wept. Jesus Christ wept. And this, in commiseration with us, in drawing near unto us, the loveliness of the lowliness of Christ's life. He humbled Himself, becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. There is at the cross the plainest display of the depth to which He plunged. If the descent began at birth, it is one even at birth anticipating the horror of the cross as Matthew records the slaughter of the innocents the death of the children, foretelling and signaling that His end would be the same in weeping and in death. He humbled Himself, becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. How manifold are the humiliating elements surrounding Calvary. Think of the betrayal of Judas. Have you ever felt or been betrayed by a friend? The ache, the horror, the upending of a world. Think of the closest companions that he had fleeing or denying him. The God of the universe, Jesus Christ, the judge of all things. How ridiculous that he stood before a human judge who was going to be swayed by the fear of man to pronounce a bogus sentence. We can think of the crowds chanting, crucify Him, crucify Him. And then the fact that they demanded a criminal, a true criminal, be released in the stead of the spotless Lamb of God. We can think of the pronouncement of guilt upon an innocent one. Indeed, the only innocent one who walked upon the earth. The only one of whom it could rightly be said, not guilty. Any other person in that situation, the pronouncement of guilt in some sense would have been legitimate. This is the only one the world had ever known that had ever walked this earth who had nothing in him that deserved the pronouncement of guilty. And there he stood. And there it was pronounced. And there the dreadful decree was carried out. The whips, the thorns, the spitting, the jeers, the mocking. All of this upon the Lord of glory. All of this upon the Maker of heaven and earth. And even this fell short of the last cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The spotless Lamb made sin. The one who knew no sin, God made sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ became a curse. The one who is 
blessedness and life became accursed in his death. As it is written, cursed is everyone hung upon a tree. I profiled the dark poetry of that suspension this morning briefly. The more I consider the cross, the more profound this suspended state is. What is hanging on a tree? What is it literally? He's not of earth. He is not of heaven. He's rejected of earth. He's rejected of heaven. He is suspended between both, despised by both in that dreadful instance, becoming a curse for us. And that's how we marvel. That's the answer to the question, why? Why this descent at birth? Why this lowly condition? Why this lawmaker subjecting himself to the law? Why this co-participation, this co-miseration in the miseries of this life? Why this willing drinking of the Father's cup of wrath, which should have been raised to every one of our lips? Why this cursed suspension between heaven and earth, because everyone hung upon a tree is accursed? Why? Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That because of you, because of you, because of you, oh man, if that could sink in just for a second. My heart would soar. Wouldn't it? I would, I would probably lift off the ground in front of you. Because of you, the one who was rich became poor so that by his poverty you would become rich. That's God's word. That's what it says. That, that's God's word. Every single one of those words, thus says the Lord. Because of you, for your sakes. In this way, God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's not just the grace of Jesus Christ that we see in this indescribable descent. It is the love of God on display. The ineffable, all-glorious, Magnificent heart, enthralling love of the one whom we have spent most of our lives, most of our thoughts ignoring and defying. In this way, God loved the world. He gave his son so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have ever lasting life. Beloved, if your hearts entertain ever doubts over the love of God or the grace of Christ, one need only think upon the cross. Christ crucified, not in the stead 
of a hypothetical sinner. But in your stead, in my stead, this is God's love displayed. We know the rhetorical question, you would do that for me? Maybe you've asked that to a loved one after they have shown a more than ordinary display of kindness at inconvenience to themselves. You would do that for me? You would help me move to the North Pole? You would do that for me? I would. (laughs) You who were rich beyond all telling would exchange the glory hymned by angels for the bleat of animals, the favor of the Father for the accursedness of the cross to bring me near? You would do that for me? The Heidelberg Catechism asks, why did He suffer and die? This He did in order that by His suffering as the only atoning sacrifice He might set us free, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. This He did unto the glory of God. This He did in love for you, for me. Let's pray. We ask with your servant Paul, who now knows as he is known, that we might know what is the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of your love poured out upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ. How easy it is for us to doubt by the ministry of Christ which goes on even now as he intercedes for us, we ask that you would enable us to believe and to taste of the excellencies which have passed unto us so undeservedly. And this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.